Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and gift mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customize paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode on Etsy now. There is always some tension between the responsibility of the government to exercise its authorities and the constraints on how it can exercise those authorities. A person from Syria who has has an email exchange with someone in Iraq, that thing is going through the United States. And once it enters the United States, then there needs to be law that authorizes it because otherwise it would be unconstitutional for the government to intercept it. Do you think it's possible to generalize on where where the framers would fall if they were alive today? It's hard to know because the framers had never lived in a world of constitutional law. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypherbrief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. Jeff Stone is the Edward H. Levy Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. Jeff joined the University of Chicago Law School faculty in 1973. He served for seven years as dean of the law school and then for eight years as the provost of the university. He is a renowned constitutional scholar. He served with me in 2013 on President Obama's review group on intelligence and communications technologies, and he served from 2014 to 2017 on the director of national intelligence Jim Clapper's outside advisory board. I had the opportunity recently to sit down with Jeff and talk about the law and national security. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Um, It is great to have you on the show, and it's good to see you again. It's my pleasure to be here, and it's great to see you as always. You know, in preparing for this interview, I learned that you're the author of some 50 books. 50? 50. I don't know what you're counting. (laughs) That's the list. That's the (laughs) list I looked at. The author or co-author or chapters in or something. Oh, I'm impressed. That's uh, that's, uh, (laughs) quite a long list. Um, Your most recent book um, is called Sex and the Constitution. What a great way to sell the book, to put the word Constitution in the title. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was absolutely the, the, the catch-all. Um, you know, I go to Politics and Prose here, which is a, the place to buy books in, in Washington, D.C., and uh, I see people pick it up all the time. But do they it. buy it? Is the question. <laughs> <laughs> they look at the pictures. They, I get that. They, right? they look at the pictures. So it's a remarkable book. All kidding aside, it's a remarkable book. I really enjoyed it. It is a sweeping history of a wide range of issues related to sex, abortion, gay rights, etc., um, and how those have been legislated and dealt with by the courts over time. Why did you write it? Unlike most academic books, which you write after you have thought long and hard about a subject, you've presented lots of papers and given lectures, and writing the book is the end of the process, 
in this case, it was very much curiosity-driven project. Um, about a decade ago, I became curious about what the framers would have thought of the fact that the Supreme Court over the last 50 years has increasingly gotten involved in deciding constitutional issues about obscenity and about contraception and about abortion and about gay rights and same-sex marriage, presumably none of which they would have anticipated. And it's not that I was an originalist. I was just curious as to what they would think about it. And I went and started doing some reading on that, not with the purpose of writing a book, just out of curiosity. And what I learned really surprised me. My assumption had been that throughout most of history, the attitude about sex and these particular issues was kind of like what it had been in the United States in the 1950s when I grew up, kind of very prudish, and that the sexual revolution in the 1960s and since then had blown that all apart. And what I discovered was that was completely wrong, and that in the world of the framers, abortion was legal, contraception was legal, obscenity was legal. None of that was against the law. And that just got me very curious. And the more I read, both going back in time and going forward in time, the more I discovered I didn't know. And basically, the book was designed to share what I learned with readers. And that's how it came about. And it's particularly relevant today. Yes, yes. And it continues to be, given changes in the judiciary and, and the like. So, Jeff, I want to work my way to the law and national security, but I'd love to start by trying to understand, make sure my listeners understand the difference between a liberal constitutional scholar and a conservative one. You are of the former, certainly of the former, but I want to understand how does a conservative look at the Constitution, interpret the Constitution, and how does a liberal do that? So I'll begin with the liberal, because that's, I guess, how I would characterize myself. A liberal views the Constitution basically by saying, what was the general goal, general concern that the framers of any particular provision of the Constitution had? And then to ask how to make that aspiration meaningful in a world that is over 200 plus years, evolving, changing, social attitudes are changing, to sort of be faithful to the basic principle that the framers of the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment were trying to achieve. And the second thing I think that liberals look at is that there are two types of problems that are of special concern in interpreting the Constitution. And they derive from the understanding that the primary purpose of individual rights in the Constitution is to protect minorities against overbearing majorities. That's why we put into the Constitution the Bill of Rights. And the majority will protect itself. But what we really need in a democracy is to make sure the majority does not abuse the rights and interests of the minority. And so the two areas where liberals, I think, tend to be most aggressive about interpreting the Constitution and least deferential to the elected branches is when a law disadvantages a group in society that has historically been oppressed and disadvantaged and is not likely to be able to protect itself well in the democratic political process. And those groups are the ones that most need a judiciary that looks out carefully for their interests because of the fact that majorities can be abusive or indifferent uh, in ways that are inconsistent with the values of the Constitution. And the second concern that liberals tend to have is that another danger built into a democracy is that if at any point in time one particular group or one political party gains control of all the branches of the government, they will certainly be tempted to adopt laws that will perpetuate their power. So they will adopt laws that manipulate the electoral process, that will manipulate free speech rules, that will ensure that they get elected going forward. And courts need to be particularly attentive to those problems. So if you look at the jurisprudence, for example, of the Warren Court, which was seen as a very liberal court, what you will find is almost all of their most activist decisions fit into those two categories. There are cases where the court was looking out for the interests of minorities, like Brown v. Board of Education, and interest in which they were looking for abuse of the, of the electoral process, like the requirement of one person, one vote, or the protection of freedom of speech by the Warren Court. So that's basically yeah. what liberal justice so is. So what would a conservative? Receive. Right. So conservatives are more complicated. There are, I guess I would say today, three uh, versions of what conservative jurists look to. One is they believe in judicial restraint. That is, they think that courts should not make up the meaning of the Constitution, that that overrides the judgments of the majority, the judgments of the majority, what should control, 
And the courts, therefore, should be very deferential to those judgments and should be extremely restrained in the exercise of their power. That's one form of conservatism. That was kind of the the view of conservatism that Richard Nixon had in his criticism of the Warren Court. His view was the Warren Court was too aggressive. What we needed was the judges to turn it back and to basically be much more passive about their use of their authority. And when he appointed people like Warren Burger and Lewis Powell and Harry Blackman, that's what he was looking for. A second form of originalism or conservatism is what is called originalism. And the basic idea of originalism, which was put forth in this generation most forcefully by people like Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia, is that judicial restraint across the boards abdicates a fundamental responsibility that courts are supposed to have, that they recognize the way liberals do, that there is an important role that courts serve, and that pure judicial restraint across the boards abdicates that responsibility. So the key question is how to enable the the courts to fulfill their duties, but at the same time tie their hands so they don't overdo their temptation to strike down laws just because the justices don't like them. And so they came up with the idea of originalism, which when basically you look at what the framers themselves understood a provision to be, if they understood a provision to be designed to invalidate a particular type of law, then that law was unconstitutional. But beyond that, you didn't go. So a simple example of this would be, say, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which provides that no state shall deny to any person the equal protection of the laws. So the question arises, does a law that says women can't serve on juries violate the Equal Protection Clause? So a liberal jurist would say the Equal Protection Clause is written broadly. It's not confined to any specific group. What the framers were trying to do with the Equal Protection Clause were, in particular, was to protect disadvantaged groups whose interests had been not valued and make sure they were being carefully protected. And they would say that a law that precludes women from serving on juries is the product of the same kind of um, impropriety that even if the framers didn't think that at the time, the goal they were putting into the Constitution, as we now understand it, would say that law is unconstitutional. Originalists would say no. They would say the framers were not thinking about women. They were only thinking about race, even though it didn't say no state shall deny any person equal protection of the laws on the basis of race. But they would say that was the primary concern in the minds of the framers at that time, which is true. And they would say that's all the Equal Protection Clause invalidates. The, the problem with originalism is severalfold, right? First thing is that most of the time we don't really know what the framers thought or intended about any particular issue because most of the time they really didn't think or talk about them. And so what frequently happens is that when originalists purport to be carrying out what they believe to have been the understandings of the framers, they're really just doing the following. They basically say, well, the framers were reasonable people. I'm a reasonable people. This is what I would have intended if I had been a framer. This must be what the framers intended. This is what the Constitution means. And so that that temptation has led many contemporary originalists to purport to be originalists, but really not to be. And therefore, the third version of conservative today are jurists who purport to be originalists, but in fact are just substituting conservative ideological values into the Constitution. So two good examples of that would be conservative jurists today say that laws regulating campaign finance violate the First Amendment. But no originalist view of the First Amendment could support that. There were no issues about campaign finance at the time the First Amendment was adopted. The framers didn't have any views on that question. You might be able to make a plausible argument as a liberal justice that that's unconstitutional, but originalists can't do it. But the conservative justices now say that's unconstitutional. Another example would be affirmative action, right? Affirmative action was no more in the minds of the framers of the Equal Protection Clause than was discrimination against women. So a true originalist would have to say affirmative action is constitutional because we have no reason to believe the framers affirmatively understood affirmative action to be unconstitutional because there was no affirmative action in that world, right? But in fact, conservative jurists today consistently vote to hold affirmative action unconstitutional, often purporting to be originalist when, in fact, real originalism doesn't support it. So that's the kind of most cynical form of judicial review I think we have today. Do you think it's possible to generalize on where where the framers would fall if they were alive today? That's a good question. It's hard to know because the framers had never lived in a world of constitutional law. And so they themselves, I think, didn't have a clear understanding of how this would work. Um, They did understand that judicial review was critical. They did understand that you needed courts, individuals with life tenure, 
who were not subject to the electorate, who could stand up against majorities to protect minority rights, that was critical. But I think in fairness, you can't really say that they had a philosophy in their own minds because they didn't really have any experience with it, and it was a whole new ballgame for them. Okay. With that as background, let's, let's talk about the Constitution and national security. The preamble of the Constitution, as you well know, says that the government has to provide security to its citizens, right? The exact words are provide for the common defense. And it also says the government must preserve liberty. The exact words are secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. In short, it says do both. So as a constitutional scholar, do you see a tension between these, these two things? Do you see a conflict between them? Well, there's A trade-off, a balance? Yes. I mean, there's always a conflict between the responsibilities of the government, the powers of the government to do certain things. Everything the government does that is not unconstitutional, it is empowered to do by definition, right? It's authorized to do. And protecting the common defense is one thing, but they're also supposed to protect the common welfare and the list of things that government's supposed to do goes on and on. So there is always some tension between the responsibility of the government to exercise its authorities and the constraints on how it can exercise those authorities. And so I don't think the conflict between protecting the common defense and respecting individual liberties is in principle any different than protecting the the general welfare and respecting the, the individual liberties. So that conflict exists throughout constitutional law. It's not in any way unique to the, to the question of, of national security, although obviously in the realm of national security, the stakes can be much higher. The need to give deference to the government in some contexts can be particularly great, and, and therefore courts do tend to exercise their power of constraining the government with a degree of deference in the national security area that's greater than they normally would show partly because they understand that much of what goes on in national security is not public, and therefore their ability to make informed judgments is limited. And second, they understand the stakes are very high if they make, if they make mistakes, and therefore they tend to give more deference. Yeah. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. If you like what you're hearing and want more of the serious conversations happening around national and global security issues, join our NatSec community at thecypherbrief.com. Click on the Threat Conference button to find out more about our premier national security conference in April, where we'll bring together dozens of high-level experts from the Cypher Briefs network, along with global corporate leaders, to share ideas, talk about how we tackle threats, and enhance cooperation from the best minds in the world on these issues. General Michael Hayden will deliver the Cypher Briefs annual threat report. He calls the conference a live-action version of what you get at the Cypher Brief every day. For more information, go to tcbconference.com. No politics, just strategies and solutions to combat real-world threats. You can also follow hashtag TCB Threat Conference on Twitter. Now back to the conversation. So let's, um, let's talk about some specific issues. And maybe the way to do this is to kind of go through three amendments and maybe start with the fourth. Two clauses here, right? The first, establishing the right of the people to be free of unreasonable search and seizure. And then the second, establishing limits, probable cause, on the power of the government to issue warrants that authorize search and seizures. And I guess the link between those two things is probable cause is, is, gets you to the reasonable standard in right. the first phrase. So clearly this, this has implications for government surveillance. Yes. Right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So the, the Supreme Court has interpreted those provisions in the Fourth Amendment basically to say that there is a strong presumption that the government may not engage in a search of an individual unless it has probable cause to believe that the individual has done wrong or there's evidence to be obtained, and a magistrate or a judge has made the determination a probable cause. Then the court has said that there are exceptions to that presumption. One of those, for example, one of those exceptions is in situations where there's an exigency. So if you're chasing someone down the street who's just, you saw the person commit a murder, and they race into their house, and you're the cop following him, you don't have to stop and get a warrant. In that circumstance, you could follow him into the house, even though ordinarily you could not enter somebody's house without probable cause and a warrant. Here, you don't have to get the warrant because time simply doesn't allow it. Second, the court has said there are certain types of searches that are, because of their nature, so modest that police officers or government officials can do them in circumstances without probable cause and a warrant. So an example might be stop and frisk. 
where if, if a police officer has occasion to stop and speak with a citizen on the street to investigate something and has reason to believe that the person may be armed and dangerous, they can pat them down without going and getting a warrant, without having probable cause that they're armed and dangerous, as long as they have reasonable grounds to believe that they might be. So there are variations on the core, but the core is you can't search without probable cause and a warrant. The second really important thing to understand here is the definition of what a search is, one of the most complicated areas of the Fourth Amendment, and it's very relevant to many of the issues involved in national security. So when the framers adopted the Fourth Amendment, they had a very clearly defined understanding of what a search was. A search was a physical intrusion into a physical space owned or controlled by the person being searched. So if you went into someone's home, if you went into their wallet, if you went into their pockets, if you opened their briefcase or their suitcase, that was a search. And you couldn't do that without probable cause and a warrant. The meaning of search got complicated when we entered the world of, uh, of wiretapping, because a wiretap can be undertaken without entering the physical space owned or occupied by the target of the search. You tap a wire outside the home, right? And when the Supreme Court first looked at this question in 1928, in a case called Olmstead, the court said, this is not a search, that wiretapping is not a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, because there's no physical intrusion into a physical space owned or occupied by the target of the search. And that remained the law for almost 40 years. And it wasn't until 1967, when the Supreme Court reexamined the question, and held in the case of Katz versus United States, that a search has to be understood not only in the very narrow way in which the framers understood it, in the world in which they lived, but that because of changing technology, the values, the goals that they had in mind in enacting the Fourth Amendment had to be adapted to changing technology, which enabled the government now to intrude on privacy in ways that couldn't have been imagined back at the time that the Fourth Amendment was adopted. And therefore, the court held that wiretapping, uh, even though it did not physically enter a physical space of the target, was a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. So that's an example of what we talked about earlier in terms of how you could adapt the meaning of a particular word to changes in society and changes in technology in this instance over time. But that, has played a ver that issue has played a very important role in many of the national security issues, which involve not simply going to somebody's house but gathering information in much more complex ways. So let me actually mention two of them that we actually worked on together on the Obama Commission. The first is the Telephone Metadata Program, Section 215 of the Patriot Act. Can you walk people through what that was, why it was an issue, and where you ended up in thinking about it? So what the Metadata Program did, basically, was to authorize the NSA to gather phone record data from telephone companies, about millions upon millions of customers, without any reason to believe any of those customers as individuals were involved in anything illegal or that threatened the national security. And what they were able to obtain was simply data, not conversations, not content, but simply phone numbers. So basically what they amassed were individuals' phone numbers, every phone number they called and every phone number they called them in a massive database. Right. Time, a date and time right. and duration. Right, the date and time and duration of the phone calls, but nothing about what was being said or even the names of the people. And, and indeed, the, the NSA wasn't actually looking at any of the data. They were just initially collecting it in this massive database. Then, when the NSA determined that they had reasonable ground to believe that a particular phone number was being used to communicate with someone who was reasonably believed to be a, a terrorist, um, or involved in some way in terrorist activities, they could query the database. And what would happen is the database would then basically throw back to them the name, the, I'm sorry, the phone numbers of any person or of any number that had been connected to the suspected terrorists. And then they could do what was called a second hop, which meant that the database would throw out to them phone numbers of any, any number that was connected to the person who was connected to the terrorist and so on. Right. And obviously, they're interested in this is if you think somebody's a terrorist, you want to know who else they're talking exactly. to. This is connecting the dots. Right. And what they then could do was to give the data to the FBI, and there could then be further investigations to determine whether there was something here to be looked at. And one question was whether this was A, was whether this program was legal in the sense that it was authorized by the statute that gave the government power to 
do national security investigations, and second, whether it was consistent with the Fourth Amendment, right? And on the one hand, one might say, from the Fourth Amendment perspective, how could this be constitutional? You're gathering all this very private information about millions of Americans who've done nothing wrong, putting it in the hands of government officials, enabling them to then review that information without probable cause and a warrant, and then turn it over to the FBI for further investigations. Uh, Why isn't this a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment? So to go back to the Katz case in 1967, one of the problems that the court faced when it expanded the definition of search was how do you then cabin what is a search, Mm -hmm. right? What What is the new boundary of what a search means? And so what the court said in Katz was that a search intrudes upon the reasonable expectations of privacy of individuals and that a government wiretap intrudes upon reasonable expectations of people. It's really not different from opening mail, even though it's technologically different. But then the question was, well, how do you figure out what a reasonable expectation of privacy is? What does that mean? So one of the early questions the court had um, involved two cases. One of them involved the police going to a phone company, having suspicion about a particular individual as to whether that individual was calling someone else for criminal purposes, and asked the phone company to give them the phone records of the suspect to see whether he was, in fact, calling this other person. And the Supreme Court ruled that was not a search of that person within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. The second and even more interesting and dramatic example was bank records. The government went to a bank because they wanted to know about an individual's bank transactions, and the bank turned over to the government the financial records and transactions of the suspect, no warrant, no probable cause. And the suspect then said, this violated my rights under the Fourth Amendment. I have a reasonable expectation of privacy in my bank records. So in both of those cases, the Supreme Court said, what you disclose to other persons voluntarily, you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in. So that if I tell you, quote, a secret, and the police then go to you and say, what did Stone tell you? And you tell them, that's not a search, Mm. right? So the court extended that to the phone records, because I voluntarily disclosed my phone records to the phone company, and to the bank records, because I voluntarily exposed my bank records to the bank. And that argument was made as well in the metadata case that basically you expand, you exposed all your phone records to the phone company, to the people who work in the phone company. And the argument is when you voluntarily disclose something to a third party like that, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy because you're turning it over to other people and you don't really care about the privacy. What's come up over the years as these cases have gone forward is the question, does that really make any sense, right? Does that notion of third-party consent really stand scrutiny in a world in which the massive amounts of information that can now be gathered, right? It's very different than I tell you something. Now all my phone records, right? All my financial records. um, Do I really not have a reasonable expectation of privacy in all that kind of information? So that's the question the Supreme Court's going to have to be grappling with in the next couple of years. How far are we prepared to take that principle? Even if it makes sense in the simple case where I tell a friend something, does it really make sense when you begin to extend it as far as it's now going forward? And now the issue is arising in the context of GPS. And there's a case before the Supreme Court this year, the Carpenter case, which raises exactly this question. It's where the police got GPS records to track the movements of an individual over an extended period of time in trying to prove that that individual had been involved in a series of crimes. And the GPS records show that he was in the vicinities of these places. And the question is, can they just go to the company and get the GPS records? No probable cause, no warrant. And so the issue is, does that constitute a search under the Fourth Amendment? And clearly the court is, the justices are beginning increasingly to have reservations about how far you can take this. And if the metadata issue had gotten to the courts in that way, it would have raised the same question. From a policy perspective, we as a group, right, not from a legal perspective, but from a policy perspective, we had we as a group recommended some fundamental changes to this. Right. And you were key in driving that, I think, with regard to the question of will the government abuse power? Not that they were abusing it in this case, but did it create the possibility of the abuse of power? Right. 
So the issue before us was not the Fourth Amendment question. We were not charged by the president to look at constitutional issues. It was policy. And so one of the concerns we had is that we know from the past that um, executive branch officials have, in certain circumstances, seriously abused their authority under the um, Johnson administration and, and J. Edgar Hoover and under the Nixon administration, where they had access to information in ways that they clearly abused. And one of the concerns we had is that if the NSA has all of this data in its possession, then it's easy to imagine a scenario where someday a director of NSA or a president of the United States uh, directs them not to follow the careful constraints that were put in place in terms of you can't query unless you have a reasonable suspicion and all this other stuff, but just say, I want to know what that journalist who said that really rotten thing about me, you know, I want to know where he's gone. I want to know who he's talking to, right? I want to find out all of his sources. I want to know if he's gay. I want to find out who's, you know, who he's seeing. Did you see a psychiatrist? Let's find out his phone numbers, right? The potential for that is there. And so one of the things we recommended is that the phone companies should themselves keep this data and that the government can have access to the data only when they can show to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court that there is at least a reasonable ground to believe that the information is relevant. So we wanted to separate the government from holding the data from their ability to get it when they had a reasonable justification to get it. Mm -hmm. So that was an example of a policy way of trying to both enable the program to continue to exist in an effective way, but to reduce some of the risk that it carries with it. And the president accepted that. And the president accepted that, correct. The second issue here is Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, which is actually an ongoing issue, and it may get resolved between um, the time of our discussion here and when the podcast gets posted. I want people to know that, but can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So um, what, what Section 702 does is authorize the government to intercept communications of non-U.S. persons, that means non-U.S. citizens and not people who are U.S. residents, outside the United States. And it allows them to do that in circumstances in which you could not do that as against U.S. persons. So, for example, the government cannot read your emails or listen to my phone calls without probable cause and a warrant, period. But outside the United States, for people who are not U.S. persons, the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply. And therefore, they don't have constitutional rights. And the government, therefore, is not constrained by the Fourth Amendment when it gathers information from two people, one in Syria, one in Iraq, having a phone conversation or having an email exchange. And Section 702 authorizes the government to gather that sort of information with constraints on, on how it can gather, because we do respect the rights of people outside the United States, even though we don't give them the same protections that we give American citizens. The reason that you actually needed legislation in this case is because technology had changed. Right. If those two folks overseas are communicating with each other with, within a single country, there's no law that's required to allow CIA or NSA to collect that. But in this case, right, because technology's changed, that communication between those two individuals outside the United States is actually passing through the United States. Exactly. So, right. So because of the internet, for example, a person from Syria who has, a, who has an email exchange with someone in Iraq, that thing is going through the United States. And once it enters the United States, then there needs to be law that authorizes it, because otherwise it would be unconstitutional for the government to intercept it. So our view is that that program has served significant, important purposes. It's produced useful information for In the fact, government. much more useful than, than the metadata program. Exactly. The metadata program demonstrated much less value than the 702 program. But one of the things that we were concerned about is that sometimes those communications are with Americans. Sometimes a person in Iraq is speaking, who's already been targeted, right, is talking to someone in the United States or an American outside the United States, and that those emails or those phone calls will now get picked up in the 702 system. And the interesting problem is that even though it's not a search directed at the American citizen, right, because you couldn't do that under 702, right, but the incidental fact that the American citizen is a party to the phone call or the email exchange gives rise to this, a problem because the government now has in its database, which now includes the content of emails, not just phone numbers, the content of emails, uh, emails by involving Americans. So one of the things we recommended is that the government should not be allowed to, to query that database of information, of emails, to find information about American citizens without going to a court and getting a warrant to do so. Because even though they were not the targets of the searches, these searches are being allowed 
in circumstances that would never be permissible against Americans. And therefore, the government should not be able to take advantage of the fact that it has picked up this information, even if it's inadvertent, without first protecting the rights of the American citizens. So that was not in the statute. It's one of the recommendations we made, is that the government should not be able to query this information to learn about what Americans have, have said and done without a separate justification and, and review. And that recommendation has been before Congress, which has deliberated on it. And again, it's before them now. Uh, the argument in favor of doing this is that this entire program, which is important and we think legitimate, does incidentally threaten the privacy rights of Americans. And that's not the purpose of it. Right? The purpose of it is not to be uh, interfering with the rights of Americans, it's to be learning about communications between non-Americans outside the United States. So the fact that this information has been gathered is not what, what has been really authorized. It's not the intention of the program. And Americans have rights to be protected. And therefore, our judgment was that they, their rights should be respected, even though these people not, not inside the United States who are not American citizens don't have the same rights. The argument on the other side, which is a serious argument, is that in general, when the government conducts a legal search, if it learns information about a, another person, it can use that information. So if they search my home with probable cause and a warrant, because they have probable cause to believe I've committed the crime, and in it they discover a letter written to me by Joe, in which Joe confesses to being a drug dealer, right? They can use that against Joe. And if Joe says, well, there was no probable cause against me, right? The government can say, we inadvertently picked that up in a legal search, and you can use that under the Fourth Amendment. But the argument that we made is that the difference is that that search at least met the requirements for the Fourth Amendment. The first search. Right, the first search. Yeah. Whereas in the 702 situation, it's not meeting those requirements, mm -hmm. and we should still protect the rights of Americans in that context. And that's now before Congress, and it's, mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see how it gets resolved. In our review group, we looked at it again from a policy perspective and made the recommendations you suggested. How do you think about it from a Fourth Amendment constitutional perspective? I think from a Fourth Amendment perspective, it would be more difficult to make the argument that we've made as a policy argument. It is the case under Fourth Amendment law, as I said, that in general, you can use evidence obtained about a third party in the course of an otherwise legal search. I think for the reasons we discussed a moment ago, there's good reason not to allow that evidence to be used against an American in the 702 context. But I think the policy argument is stronger than the mm. Fourth Amendment argument. Mm. And there are lots of constraints we put on, on what government can do that go way beyond what the Constitution requires. And this is an example, I think, of a, of a sensible one that protects the interests of Americans, whether or not the Fourth Amendment requires it. We'll see where Congress ends up on that. It'll be interesting to see, yes. Okay, First Amendment, mm -hmm. right? And, and what I'm particularly interested in here is that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press— and I want to ask you two things about how that relates to national security. One is the ability of the media to publish information that has been classified by the government that the media happens to acquire. And my question is, is that right absolute in your view, or are there limits? So what the Supreme Court held in the Pentagon Papers case, where Daniel Ellsberg took classified information, the Pentagon Papers, revealed it to the New York Times, the Washington Post, they began publishing it. The Nixon administration sought to enjoin the publication of that information to get a court order ordering them to stop. And the Supreme Court said it would not be consistent with the First Amendment to enjoin the publication of even classified information unless the government can prove that the publication of the information would create a clear and present danger of grave harm to the nation. And the court said that the government hadn't adequately demonstrated that in the Pentagon Papers case. And I think that is a very hard, hard standard to satisfy. It's interesting that in all the years since the Pentagon Papers controversy, there's not been a single instance where the media has been either enjoined or punished for disclosing classified information. And I think that the standard put in place by the Pentagon Papers was meant to be extremely high. Now, one can imagine cases where I think you could see the court punishing it. So, for example, suppose the media published the names of secret American agents in Iraq, and they were then immediately arrested and killed by Iraqi authorities. I think then a court might say that was a clear and present danger, a grave harm, and the information didn't present any particular value to the American people. It didn't disclose any useful information, right? Nobody needs to know who those people are. 
And yet the disclosure had a grave effect immediately and predictably on them. So there are cases you can imagine where I think a court would uphold constraints on their media. Basically, the compromise the courts have reached on this is to say that the government has great power to punish government employees who reveal classified information. Because as a government employee, you basically waive your ordinary rights as a condition of taking the job. You actually sign a contract. Right, you sign right. a contract. Now, there are limits on the extent to which the government can require people. And that was my, that's my second question, right? What right. are those limits? Well, I mean, the limits basically mean that the restriction has to be, at the very least, reasonable and serving a substantial government interest. So, for example, suppose a school district says to teachers, you have to sign an agreement that says you will never support uh, openly a Democratic candidate. That would clearly be unconstitutional. On the other hand, if they say you have to sign an agreement never to advise your students to use cocaine, that would be reasonable, and you could require them to do that. Similarly, in the classified context, in the confidential information context, the presumption has been that classified information, by definition, there's a substantial interest in keeping it confidential, and that government employees can constitutionally be required to agree to that concession as a condition of uh, accepting employment. You could imagine a case where information that has been classified so obviously should not have been classified, that would be an interesting question as to whether you can punish the employee for disclosing it. But the basic way the courts have tried to allow the government, on the one hand, to control this, and on the other hand, not interfere with the freedom of the media, is to basically give the media extraordinarily high protection to publish, but to give the government pretty strong power to deter government employees from disclosing information. Is there any exception to the latter based on the the value to the public of what is being leaked by the government employee? This is Snowden's argument, right? That what I told the public was so important that they hear that I, at the end of the day, didn't violate my secrecy agreement. Right. So here, here's the way to think about the question. There's no, by the way, decision that has addressed that particular question, whether there could be such an exception. But- Here's the trade-off. On the one hand, if a leaker reveals very valuable information that does not, in fact, cause harm anywhere near equal to the value of the information that's been disclosed, it would be pretty painful to punish him for disclosing it. On the other hand, do you want every Tom, Dick, and Harry who has access to classified information to think that it might be okay for them to disclose the information, because I think the value of it is greater than the harm, when the information they have is very limited in making that assessment. So you the system, might... The system would break down. Right. You might well want to overprotect the government interest here in order to avoid encouraging employees from thinking that, well, I can reveal this information because I think it's more valuable than harmful, even though they often won't really know what the hell they're talking about. And so the argument would be that we can't create an exception here because if we create an exception, it will wind up inducing people to release really harmful information that doesn't have the value they think it does or has much more harm than they think it does. And we don't want individual government employees, when there's millions of them with access to classified information, thinking it's okay for them to make that judgment. So you're comfortable where, we've, where, I am comfortable where the courts that. have struck this balance. Yes. Now I want to ask you, and you probably didn't expect this, um, and I didn't expect to ask it until a couple of days ago, to ask you about the Second Amendment. And the reason I'm going to ask about the Second Amendment is because Nick Rasmussen, the recently departed director of the National Counterterrorism Center, said in a recent interview that he was concerned that the ease of acquiring guns in the United States posed a national security threat, that the ease of acquiring weapons here would give terrorists a huge advantage here. I'm just interested in your thoughts on the Second Amendment in general, and in particular on the potential viability of an argument that the Second Amendment right could be limited based on national security? Well, on the second, let me start there. I don't think that any justice of the Supreme Court who believes in an extremely robust Second Amendment, I'll come back to that in a moment, would see the claim that the access to guns might pose a threat to national security would be sufficient justification for restricting the rights of Americans that they otherwise think they have, mm -hmm. except in a very narrowly defined circumstance where you can say the national security risk is enormous, having a very focused example. And that's a little bit like the publication of information that's classified. If you believe that in general, it's very important for people to be able to have access to information about the government, and you don't trust the government to constrain it, 
then you give great protection to the media, even with respect to classified information. A justice who has a similar view of the Second Amendment would say the same thing and would say that except in a clear and present danger of grave harm, no, you can't restrict guns just because somebody might use a gun someday in a way that harms the national security. We all know somebody can use a gun to assassinate the president. That doesn't mean you can ban all guns. Okay, so then how should we interpret the Second Amendment is a different question. Historically, the Second Amendment was understood as limited to a, a specific set of circumstances. The text of the Second Amendment talks about in order to preserve a well-regulated militia, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be constrained. And what the framers were primarily thinking about is there were no police departments in the old days. And in order to have a militia, you needed to have people having a right to bear arms. Uh, The question was, what meaning did that have in a world that had changed so much that now there are police departments and individual citizens don't need to have weapons in order to serve the function that the police would serve. So in 1930s, the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment fairly narrowly and basically said that the government can regulate uh, guns when they have a reasonable justification for doing so. But the Supreme Court revisited that question in the Heller case in a five to four decision in which the issue basically was whether uh, the government could ban uh, access to to guns among citizens, um, except if they had a specific justification for owning them. And the Supreme Court said no, and they, they basically said that the right to keep and bear arms is deeply embedded in the right to self-defense, and that individuals have a right to have, have guns in part because they need a gun if somebody comes into their home at night so they can defend themselves, or in other ways that they might defend themselves. And they took a much broader view of the Second Amendment than anyone had ever done before. Um, the four dissenters in the case were vehemently opposed to that view and said that that blew the, 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 the importance of the right way out of proportion to what it was originally understood for and how it should be limited today. And it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time, but because the Supreme Court in that case did not ask the question, could you ban submachine guns, for example? It didn't get to that question. So it basically left vague what limitations would be permissible. But what it did say is, is, as a general matter, people have a right to bear, to own guns. Was there a flip here in the conservative, liberal, originalism? Yeah, good point. I mean, in two ways, one can say that this is an example of the third variation of what I gave earlier of conservative judicial philosophy. So a true originalist, which Justice Stevens wrote a very strong dissent, making this argument, I think, persuasively, a true originalist would not hold the kind of gun regulations that were at issue in Heller unconstitutional. They would have said that the Second Amendment had a specific purpose. Its purpose was to deal with the reality that there were no police departments at that time, and that it does not have any relevance in the same way today, and that therefore reasonable regulations of guns are permissible. And the true originalist argument would come out that way. The judicial restraint version of a conservative would obviously again come out that way and say, we give deference to the judgment of the elected branches of government. Here, the elected branch decided that we should have regulations of guns, and it's not our business to disagree with them. I should say liberal jurisprudence would also reach that result, because you would say either that here there is no impact on historically oppressed groups, and this does not involve distortion of the political process, so it is appropriate to give deference in this situation. And the best explanation of the five conservative justices who were in the majority in Heller is that they were doing the third version of, of conservative jurisprudence, which is reaching what they believe to be a political, ideologically attractive result mm-hmm. in the guise of being originalist when it was not a persuasive justification. Jeff, you've been, you've been very generous with your time. I just want to ask you one more question. Our politics here in America is certainly not what it needs to be. And to me, that's a national security issue because I think it weakens us as a nation. And there's lots of reasons why our politics are not what they need to be. And one of those is the amount of money in politics. You touched on this earlier, very briefly. Particular case here, Citizens United. And I know you've called this one of the worst Supreme Court decisions ever. Can you talk about that a bit? Sure. So the fundamental question is to what extent government can regulate the 
expenditure of vast amounts of sums by particular individuals or corporations in the political process in order to get politicians elected and to get the politicians who are elected to do what they want. And it's a complicated issue because on the one hand, as I mentioned earlier, one of the special concerns of courts is when government regulates the electoral process, they are tempted to do so in a way that will manipulate it to benefit themselves. And so one of the concerns about campaign finance regulation is that what's really going on is the public officials are either trying to benefit their own political party, or even if they can't do that, they're trying to benefit themselves as incumbents. And that the real reason for campaign finance regulation is not to create a better electoral system, it's to either get my party to benefit or to get me as an incumbent who benefits from campaign restrictions. And those are real reasons for courts to be concerned about them. And for that reason, I think courts should not take lightly the concern that those restrictions violate the First Amendment. On the other hand, there's two reasons why I think the court was wrong in Citizens United. The first is that the Campaign Finance Act of 2002, which was at issue, was the bipartisan Campaign Finance Act, which was McCain, Republican, Feingold, Democrat, signed into law by President George W. Bush, and therefore it was clearly not designed to benefit either political party. And that, that took away one of the most important concerns. That doesn't mean it wasn't designed to benefit incumbents. It may well have been, frankly. But it takes away the most dramatic concern that one would have. And the second thing is that the impact of money on our political system is extraordinarily corrupting, both in the sense that the, the person with more money is significantly more likely to win. That's well documented. And more importantly, candidates and officials want that money for their next election. And so they wind up perfectly predictably voting in the way their wealthy donors want them to vote. And that's not what a democracy is supposed to be. And I think that the justifications for putting restrictions on campaign expenditures are sufficiently compelling to justify the restrictions that were put in place by that legislation. And again, it was, it's interesting. It was a straight partisan vote within the Supreme Court. The five most conservative justices all voted to strike it down, which is not consistent with judicial restraint. It is not consistent with originalism. And the four more, more liberal justices all voted to uphold it and say it was not unconstitutional. And I, I think in that situation, the more liberal justices were right, even though here it's sort of all backwards. Because, you know, you would normally think the liberal justices are going to protect the First Amendment fiercely, and the conservative justice is going to be more deferential. But in this instance, I think it's really true that the threat to democracy was really great. But it's also true that Republicans benefit much more from this money than Democrats do. And interestingly, to the great credit of the Republicans in 2002, even though they knew that, they cared enough about the country to pass the legislation. And yet the justices of the Supreme Court were not willing to defer to that. I've said to you a bunch of times, I should have gone to law school, and, and you keep on telling me it's not too late. Right. I've really enjoyed this. Jeff Stone, the author of Sex and the Constitution, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. This was fun. That was Jeff Stone. I'm Michael Morell, and this was Intelligence Matters. Please join us next time. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.